Father, thank you again for your love and care for us. We can reflect that in song, that uh, as we have prayed often, that the words we sing together and the words we use to teach one another would truly be the reflection of a deep heart attitude that we can rejoice together in all you are and all you've provided for us in Christ. So now, Lord, we come to your word and pray that you would pour out your truth, reveal it to us, use it to sanctify us and make us more like your son so we can love and serve one another effectively in your name. So we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, guys, I'd like to invite you once again to open your Bibles up to Colossians chapter 4. Very important text. Spend a couple of weeks on it. Began this study last Lord's Day, so continue and hopefully wrap it up today. But Colossians chapter 4, draw your attention to verse 2, and I will read through verse 4. Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. So what we're doing right now is we are studying this very important topic of prayer. We have titled this sermon, Prayer, the Commitment of the New Man. And while, of course, in Christ, we have many different commitments, commitments of all varieties, we recognize that prayer is one of those commitments that is one of the utmost importance. And I think that sometimes we can see the effect, whether it's immediately or sometime uh, in a prolonged fashion, what happens when we refuse to pray. I think one of the benefits when we do pray and when we pray regularly, is we, is we begin to connect the dots. We, we begin to, to recognize God's work in our lives, among many other things. We recognize His goodness, His grace, His sovereign power, His direction, even His will for us. And I think a lot of those things become very blurry at best when we stop praying. So we use this to remind ourselves of that, that praying is totally natural. Praying should be like breathing to the new man in Christ, we should look for opportunities to do so. We should pray about everything, really. It's one of the key commitments of the Christian. We are committed to pray. And so we will move through this passage in Colossians very deliberately. And I think out of this, we broke it down into four primary directives, four primary truths about prayer. Prayer in terms of our commitment to do so. So last Lord's Day, we'll just go through these Initial three really quickly. There were four. We got through three of them. So if you look at verse 2, he says, devote yourselves to prayer. So the commitment to pray is revealed by a consistent activity. That's found in the word devotion. When we talk about devotion to prayer, we talk about an activity that is done with with great uh, deliberation and with great anticipation. We devote ourselves to prayer. It's consistent. It's regular. It's not haphazard. It's not an activity that is forgotten or placed aside because we lack the time or the will to do so. No, we devote ourselves to it. We love to come to the throne of grace and avail ourselves to the Lord and His goodness. So the praying man prays often. And his whole worldview, we say his whole outlook, his whole outlook on life then becomes shaped by seeing things in relation to God. If you want to see things the way God sees them, 
you will not ever do that unless you pray, unless you spend time with the Lord. To spend time with Him is to begin to conform your spiritual vision, your mind, the way you think, the way you understand to His. That's the first one. Second to, secondly, is that the commitment to pray requires constant attention. So we do not imagine ourselves when we pray that we are praying and not focused on anything. We do not imagine that when we pray we are always getting distracted. And what that means in terms of devotion and attention is that we simply pray for specific things. We understand big or small, God cares about the issues we are going through. He cares about the issues of life. He cares about His people. So, we, so everything should concern us. Everything should be worthy of our attention for the simple reason that it is worthy of God's attention. God pays attention to what's going on in our lives. And so we should bring everything to Him in prayer to stand guard with our prayers. Always looking for things to pray for and people to pray for. We should see every, work every opportunity in terms of that. We find the benefit too of standing alert in prayer that we are not caught off guard by the enemy, by his temptations. So that we are not discouraged. And so we keep alert in it. Also in verse 2 is number 3. We see that the commitment to pray is rooted in a core attitude. Remember, we do not, we do not go to the throne of grace presumptuously. We go to the throne of grace with a thankful heart. That is the core attitude of the Christian. We pray often, we pray with alertness, but we pray also with an attitude of thankfulness. Remember, we don't go to God and act as if He is stingy. We don't act as if He is withholding from us a good thing that we need. This is very important. Sometimes we say things like, well, we trust God for everything, right? He owns everything. He'll provide all, He'll provide all we need, right? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But sometimes we unfortunately fall into this frame of mind where we may assert that that is true, but really we live in such a way or we think of God in such a way as if the hills are full of brown grass and the cattle is emaciated and pumped full of hormones and antibiotics. Like we're not getting the real good stuff. As if what we are presented of God in Scripture is merely a facade, but it's not, but we, but we, but we remain in unbelief concerning His character and provision. And if we doubt that, we're not going to go to Him and pray. And so this text serves as a reminder to pray constantly, to pray always, and as Paul writes elsewhere, to pray without ceasing. And of course, to pray with an attitude of thankfulness. Always anticipating God's good will for us to be revealed. Got a great quote here from Andrew Sandlin. I love it. It sounds very, it sounds very puritanical, but if you, I follow him on Facebook and he's been just writing some great stuff about prayer. But he says this, The chief reason many Christians fail in offering huge petitions to God is their implicit belief that large, difficult desires for them are large and difficult tasks for God. But there are no hard tasks for God, and it is just as easy for Him to answer capacious, complex prayers as small, simple ones. So here's his conclusion. Pour out your heart to God for mighty petitions and expect Him to do more than you even ask. What an encouragement. What an exhortation. What a, what a harsh rebuke for even some of us who fail to pray. Who neglect that important task, that most important task of prayer. And sometimes we fail in this respect. We don't expect God to do anything. And so that is why our prayers are haphazard. They're, they're faithless. 
because we really have stopped expecting great things out of God. I think some, sometimes this error can simply be found in our view of the New Testament versus the Old. You know, we look at, a, we, we look at Elijah. We cited that example last week. And he says, the text says, Elijah prayed. And what happens? The heavens were shut up for three years. It did not rain for three years. And what's our first reaction when we see something like that? Finish this sentence. Oh, that's in the Old Testament. That's in the Old Testament. God doesn't do things like that anymore. He doesn't give us mighty answers to prayer anymore. It's really the simple, ordinary things. We don't really pray with much expectation. That was confined to a a certain time. But I would say that based on what Paul says here, is that God is doing even greater things if we would only recognize them. Note offhand, just, just in a preliminary fashion, what Paul says in verse 3. He says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the Word. I would contend that this is one of the most outrageous prayers you can pray. Why? Because it is the Word that goes forth that is going to utterly transform this world. I mean, that is a prayer we want to get on board with. And yet our faith is so small. I mean, it's one thing for Elijah to pray and the heavens are shut up. We're like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. But what, what happens when the Word goes forth? Dead are raised to life. Resurrection life is given to men when the Gospel is preached. That is a greater work than shutting up the heavens. But sometimes we read over this, we gloss over it, we don't even really think about the depth and the breadth of what Paul is asking the Colossians to pray for. Open up to us a door for the Word. That, that is something we want to pray for. If we truly believe in the Gospel, we truly believe in the transforming Word of Christ as Paul describes just a few verses prior, then we will pray for this. And pray often. And pray with alertness. And pray with thankful hearts because we know what God intends to do with an open door for the Word. And so that brings us to our fourth point here. Our fourth instruction. It is this. The commitment to prayer recognizes a common aim. Okay, So the first, of course, is that it's revealed by consistent activity. It requires constant attention. It's rooted in a core attitude. And fourthly, it recognizes a common aim. And I would say this is a corporate recognition. This should not be simply confined to individual Christians. The church as a whole, the body of Christ, even on the local level, must recognize that this is our, this is our bread and butter. This is our common aim. This is what we want to happen. This is what we want God to accomplish in this world and what He will accomplish. But as we talked about even before, that that God has a way of accomplishing His will through the prayers of His saints. And we even said, yes, there are some things that do not happen because God's people do not pray. So prayer becomes the means through which God achieves His will and even advances His kingdom. I'm not saying it. Scripture's saying it. We have to take that seriously. We have to take seriously how God uses us even in the task of prayer to change this world. And so going to the text this morning, we are going to unpack this common aim, the aim of the advancement of the Word and so the advancement of the Kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see, if you look at verse uh, verse 3, he says, 
when you devote yourselves to prayer and all that you're supposed to with the heart of thanksgiving, he says, when you do this, pray at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word. And so we understand here from Paul, he covets the prayers of other saints. Paul is anything but self-sufficient. If he were, he would not ask for prayer. He could simply say, oh, me and God are good. We don't really, we don't really need your prayer. But he says, look, look at all that's happening, right? The gospel is being preached. I'm in chains, chains, and let, and yet the gospel is being proclaimed in a mighty way throughout the Roman Empire. But he, but no, he recognizes we, we want your prayers. Paul recognizes that answered prayer is a means in which God reveals and fulfills his will and his promises. So if Paul is asking for intercession, prayer from others, so should we says the same thing in Ephesians. This would sort of be the sister verse for Colossians 4. He says this, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known the, with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So he just says in verse 4 that he wants to make it clear in the way he ought to speak. He even wants prayer in how he communicates the gospel. So notice the details. It's not simply a broad request. It's very specific for the Apostle Paul, this preacher of the first order. And all he desires is that the Word of Christ will continue to be fruitful, to go forward, to see lives transformed in the kingdom of Christ revealed. So everywhere he goes, he preaches, and yet we find him here in chains. But notice this. Notice what he asks for. He asks for an open door. This is common for Paul. And we kind of this, this this is an interesting passage because we use this open door language um, sort of as Christianese. You know, if God if God closes a door, he opens a window. Now, sometimes God closes a door and doesn't open anything else. The door remains shut. And sometimes we have a hard time figuring that out. Sometimes we pray for an open door. Note this, on anything, as regards to anything but the gospel, I pray that God will open a door for this career move. I pray that God will open a door for me for this educational opportunity. I pray that God will open a door for this house I'm interested in buying. And on and on and on. I just want God to open the door. But when was the last time that we thought of an open door in terms of a gospel opportunity? As Paul writes here, an open door for the Word. When was the last time we actually thought of open doors in respect to the Gospel? In respect to this greatest item of prayer of all. This item of prayer that will, when God answers it, will truly transform and change this world. I don't think we often do. And so I bring this text to our attention this morning so that we start doing just that. This is a big prayer. This is a mighty petition that we should bring forth to God regularly. What Christian does not want to be an instrument of change in this world? What Christian does not want to be a mouthpiece for the Word of God in this world? What Christian wants to sit there and be useless? What Christian wants to be one who only prays for the little mundane issues of his life. Not saying that that's not important. But if we only compartmentalize our prayers and only pray for ourselves as individuals, 
we fail to join ourselves to the task of this big picture, this grand work of God in this world. So pray for open doors. Listen to what, listen to what Paul said. In 1 Corinthians 16, 8-9, he says, But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So think about that. When we pray for an open door for the Gospel, we are not just praying for opportunities, but we are also praying against hindrances. There are many adversaries, Paul says. No different from what's going on today. There are many adversaries. There are many who would shut the mouths of those who preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many of those who would try to misrepresent not only Jesus Christ, but His followers. His church. There are those who would be a hindrance by seeking to muddy the waters in terms of the content of the Gospel. To blur truth and error. There are many adversaries and there always will be. So what do we do? When we pray for an open door for the Word, we are effectively praying for God to shut the door on the adversary, to hold him at bay, so that the Word of Christ may go forth in power and clarity. When Paul follows up in 2 Corinthians 2.12, he says this, Now when I came to Troas for the Gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, right? he talks about, oh, this happened. The door was open. He was able to bring forth the Word. Chronicling his missionary journeys in Acts 16, he says, a door opened to go to Macedonia. So lots of things happening. Lots of activity. Lots of doors opening up for Gospel ministry. And how is this so? Well, note the person who opens the door. The person that opens this door is Christ Himself. It's His Word we're preaching. The world belongs to Him. He owns every door. So He can open and shut the ones He chooses. Love this passage in Revelation 3.17. says this, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia. Now remember, Philadelphia was the faithful church. They were doing a lot right. <laughs> says this, He who is holy who is true, who has the key of David. He's the king, right? The one who opens, and no one will shut, and who shuts, and no one opens. And he says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Well, would that be descriptive of us? Though we have little power, we've kept his word, and we have not denied his name, especially when there was every temptation to do so. But know what he says. There is an open door. We love open doors. And note that if Christ has opened this door, no one is going to shut it. You try to shut that door, or anyone tries to shut that door at their own peril. But here's the deal. If that door is open, you best walk through it. If Christ opens that opportunity, walk through the door. This is, some, this is hard sometimes for Christians to understand. Because we may pray for an open door. And then what do you know? The door is open. But maybe the door wasn't open on our terms. Maybe the situation wasn't quite what we envisioned. It's rarely the case. <laughs> and yet Christ opened it. Now whatever that opportunity for the Word may be, I urge you, walk through that door. Walk through that door. Here's the other thing. If Christ shuts a door whenever, wherever, however, and whyever He chooses, and He may never choose to tell you why, don't try to open it. You know, you can knock just to see. And we do that in prayer. Asking ourselves, of course, we always want to know what the Lord is up to, what He is doing. 
because we want to be involved in it. But if He shuts that door on you, or shuts that door on us, that is not a door at the time for effective ministry. That is not our door to walk through for the Word to go forth. But rest assured, there are other doors. And that is why we pray. We seek out those other opportunities that the Lord may give us. And I think, think as, as a church, and I think Jeremy could second this, we've only been a church for around four years, but I can say this with great confidence. There has never been a time in the history of Emmaus Road Reformed Baptist Church where every door was closed. Where there was actually no avenue for bringing forth the Word. And I could say with equal confidence that there's probably also never only been one. There are typically a few to several avenues through which the Gospel can be manifested. Where the Gospel can go forth. And so even though Paul is in chains, he recognizes too that the Gospel is never in chains. The Gospel is never bound. And I think we can learn a good lesson when it comes to the various circumstances in which we find ourselves. Paul says, in verse 3, he says, that I may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been imprisoned. Now, I'm sure Paul would rather not be in prison. We, found, we find him in the book of Acts kind of bouncing around from trial to trial. You know, in Acts 21, he preaches to a mob that arrests him. In Acts 24, he preaches before Felix. So you notice a pattern here developing. He's kind of bound, but uh, he still preaches anyway. In Acts 26, he stands before Herod Agrippa. And what does Herod Agrippa say? You've almost convinced me to become a Christian. And then in Acts 28, the final chapter of Acts, Paul arrives as a prisoner in Rome. He's, under, he's going to be under house arrest. And what does he do? He calls the Jews together and preaches Christ to them. So Paul understands his circumstances. He is one who can say, even though I'm in chains, even though from a human point of view, who des- one who desires to preach the Gospel may be in the worst circumstances possible, this is a great opportunity to make Christ known. What's going on with Paul? He's always, he's, he's always around Roman soldiers. He's got people coming to visit him. In his mind, and, in, and it should be in our mind as well, the Word of God is never, the Word of God is never chained up. The Word of God will always, as Christ sees fit, advance and advance freely and openly. But look how he does that. He does that through the prayers of his saints. Pray for us as well that God will open up a door to us for the Word. And this is not just something I would say, oh, pray for Jeremy and I. Pray for your pastors, that opportunities. Pray for yourselves as well. Pray for one another. We are all mouthpieces of the Word of God. If we are Christians, we should all look for opportunities to bring forth the Word of Christ and Him crucified. Pray for yourselves for opportunities. Pray for one another for open doors. And see the Gospel advance. Let's look at the text a little more closely. It says that God will open up to us a door for the Word so that, so there's a so that, there's a purpose here, we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned. So we covered that. But let's look more closely at this issue of the mystery of Christ. Because everywhere you look in Paul's letters, he talks about this issue of the mystery of Christ. Now, this isn't what you would call, like in the first century you had mystery religions. You know, you had 
what you would call secret knowledge. And Paul, in his own way, kind of turns this issue on its head. When he says the mystery of Christ, he's talking about not things that are secret, but things that, are, that have been blown wide open. Things that have been made manifest in Christ. The reason it's called a mystery is that in some cases, in some sense, the, 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 the truth of who Christ is and what He would accomplish and all that He would be was concealed in the Old Testament. And of course, that'd be the case because Christ had not yet come and accomplished all that the Father set out for Him to do. So when we say the mystery of Christ, we're talking about all that, all that is revealed by Christ. All that Christ has, every way in which Christ has fulfilled the Scriptures. So while they are mysteries, they are no longer secrets. Because we are speaking, we are speaking forth the mystery of Christ. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ and everything that it entails. His death and resurrection and His kingdom. You go down the list, this is talked about in many different contexts. You have the mystery of the incarnation, right? Christ taking on, or God taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. The mystery of the resurrection. Paul tells the Corinthians, I tell you a mystery. (laughs) We shall not all sleep. Understand that typically the return of the Lord to come back and um, bring to a final end rebellion and uh, bring to final consummation our great salvation. It's a mystery, but it's also going to be made clear in Christ as He reveals it. When we talk about the mystery of Christ, we also have the mystery of the bride. That Christ unites Himself with his with a people, both Jew and Gentile, that's also a mystery that's been now revealed is that that God would call to himself a people composed of Jew and Gentile. I think that's why Paul alludes here to this mystery, because in chapter three, as you remember, he talks about no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. And that's part of the unveiling of that mystery, is that Christ is all and in all. So many mysteries, but when we read those things, we don't read them in the sense that they are still veiled or secret. Mysteries are things that Christ has made clear. And so, as we preach forward the mystery of, forth the mystery of Christ, we make Christ known. We make His uh, death and resurrection, His ministry, His whole life, all that He has accomplished, we make that crystal clear. So while we preach forth the mystery of Christ, we don't make it mysterious, if you see the difference there. I think Paul describes this well. Returning again to Acts 28, verse 23, we read this. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. From both the law of Moses and from the prophets. From morning until, e- until evening. So notice, that is, that is a great description of Paul preaching forth the mystery of Christ. That when we talk about Jesus, we're not merely talking from the New Testament. We're talking from the entirety of biblical writ, both old and new. All that it has to look forward to from the old, and all that is fulfilled in the new. And of course, yes, we need prayer for that. We want prayer to bring that forth with all clarity. And so this is how Paul finishes off his request. He says this, speaking forth the mystery of Christ, we would say that the whole counsel of God, for which I have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. How encouraging. I mean, if anyone knew the gospel, if anyone knew the law and the prophets and the word and this ongoing revelation of Jesus Christ, it was Paul. 
And yet still, he says, I want you to pray for me so that I will make the word of Christ clear to those to whom I speak. Clarity. So important when it comes to proclaiming Christ. And we think, well, why would we need that? Especially since the gospel message is so simple. And I think we go back to what Paul was teaching. The law of Moses and from the prophets concerning Jesus. That's a whole body of work. In any case, we need the Lord's help to make it clear. We want Him. We need Him to give us utterance. To give us strength. To help us kind of tie all these truths together to make Christ, uh, to, to make the work of Christ uh, clear and unblurried. So he says he wants this prayer to make it clear in the way he ought to speak. So this word uh, with respect to clarity, it occurs 60 times in the New Testament and what it means is to cause something to become visible or to make manifest. That same word is used in 1 Corinthians 12.7, but to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So when we talk about spiritual gifts, that's the way, but with the church serving one another with spiritual gifts, that's the way in which the presence of the Holy Spirit is made clear. They see the power of God at work in our serving and loving of one another. And so, in the same fashion, when we preach Christ, we want to make Him manifest. We want Christ to be clearly known, clearly understand, and understood and clearly revealed. It's the desire of every Christian. And we understand too that since Paul preached, since Paul brought the Gospel, and we can understand this very clearly, reading in the book of Acts, reading Philippians, especially reading Galatians, that since its inception, since the mystery of Christ was made known and clear and preached, it has been under attack. And it continues to be under attack. And throughout church history, and even today, I think we see just a, an amalgamation of the various attacks. And they kind of pop up in their own way and in their own setting. But I think that the attacks are ongoing and they are constant. And we need to be aware of those. But I think one of the big ones has been inerrancy. right? That what the Scripture says really isn't true. It's really not accurate. It's fable. It's fantasy. It's made up. It's been a big attack. And a lot has gone um, into uh, defending inerrancy, defending the, the purity of the Word of God that even God Himself has preserved His Word so that we can trust it. That what we read in here and what we hold in our hands is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. Well, I think that attack failed. It continues to fail. Another one is sufficiency. I think that's been a big one. I think we, we, we see that attack especially um, in the context of personal experience. The Word may be sufficient. It may be all I need. Christ may be all in all. But I've had this experience. I've been through this. I'm living out my own truth. It's this attack on Scripture which says we need more. That God, while He has told us a lot, has not told us enough. We need more experience. We may even need more revelation in order to live a God-honoring life. But we hold, as Paul does very clearly in the Colossians, the book of Colossians, that Christ and His Word are sufficient. Here's another one. If you've been attending Sunday school, Jeremy's been addressing this very issue. An attack on historicity of the Word. Historicity. That we really can't, we really can't look at Scripture and, and see it as a reliable historical account, especially of the person and work of Christ. So you notice the, all the context, all, all the ways in which Scripture comes under attack. 
And we should also be very quick to acknowledge how Scripture is still able to weather those attacks. Because Scripture is sufficient, it is inerrant, and it is historically accurate. All Scripture has to be is what it is. The Word of God. That is precisely why it's withstood the attacks all these centuries. But more recently, I think this, is a, uh, this attack has come in, in the way of clarity. That the clarity of Scripture, the message of Scripture, is coming under attack. And in today's, chalk this up to a more postmodern and even by extension uh, a cultural Marxist view of, of society and of reality and of life and of ethics, that it is seen as wrong or arrogant to be certain about what is in the Bible. It's really seen as wrong or arrogant to be certain about anything except being certain about that, apparently. Um, note the hypocrisy there. But this is Paul's concern. Pray that I would be clear. You notice that the clearest preacher of the Word of God in history was the Lord Jesus Christ. The most skilled, the most clear, the most truthful, the most awesome teacher of the Word of God in history was the Lord Jesus. And yet even He was attacked. And so no matter how clear you make your presentation of the Word of Christ, note that as long as you are faithful, friends, you will come under attack. Especially in regards to clarity. When you preach the Word with precision, you will get hit with accusations like, how can you say you know that? You don't have the foggiest idea or clue about what Paul or James or John or Jesus meant. And uh, and one of the most recent techniques, in fact, is, well, Jesus didn't ever teach that, so therefore it must not be of any consequence. Paul, Paul may have said it, James may have said it, John may have said it, Jude may have said it. But if Jesus didn't say it, well, we can't really be altogether sure. But that's really what Christianity teaches. So there's a recent example of an attack on clarity is when one, one, one writer is pitted against the next. Where the book of James is pitted against the Gospel of Matthew. Or where Paul, is, Paul in, in, in his Gospel that he presents is pitted against the loving Jesus that we read about in John. All that attacks, it serves to attack the clear message in Scripture. And so Paul asks for prayer because his message itself, his presentation, what he preaches regarding Christ is going to be under attack. You know, think about when he preached, what was, what was one of the accusations brought against him? What is this idle babbler talking about? What is he spinning? What is this, what is this talk of resurrection? See, that's an attack on clarity. And so as Paul prays for clarity, so should we pray for one another that above all, we would be clear when we proclaim Christ, no matter what we see as having infiltrated, infiltrated the church these days, especially that it is fashionable and humble to say that we really don't know anything, that the Word of God is really ambiguous, it's not really clear, we have to be able to stand against that. And we stand against that not just through being clear, but, but through praying for it, that we would always be, got to be clear about God. And I think... Um, want to bring up a couple of ways we do this and you know as i said last lord's day you can kind of add to this list but this is just to grease the uh gre- grease the tracks a little bit about some of the ways that we do not bring clarity into the message a couple that have been on my mind here the first one is this is that we just deviate we deviate from the message now what does this look like this means that we are when we are in a gospel encounter a question or an accusation comes our way, 
and we either sidestep it, we deflect it, or we simply retreat. Because we find ourselves in a situation where we do not know the answer. And I'm not saying we, we don't know the answer because, oh, you know, we need to study more. I'm talking about we, don't, they, we have been caught in, our, in shameful ignorance. That we, the reason we don't know the answer is because we don't open our Bibles and study the Word of God. We're caught off guard because we fail to pray. That kind of deviation. And the only thing we're able to make clear about that kind of situation is that Christians are either cowards or we're clueless. We really have no idea what we're talking about. That is characteristic of false teachers. They teach many things, but they prove that they have no idea what they are saying. So Paul tells Timothy. Or we're cowards. We don't want to step up to the task. We don't want to answer the hard questions. Or we don't want to be honest with the Word of God. And so we either deflect or we retreat. But that's deviation. And that's a way in which we fail to make the mystery of Christ clear. Here's another one. I call there's deviation and then there's obfuscation. It's kind of a fancy word, but it means to muddy or blur an issue. And when we, and how do we obfuscate? It's basically a mixture of truth and error. And it's where we make the gospel, we make Christ and His gospel blurry. And it's, it's a situation where we, we have bits and pieces. Right? Bits and pieces of the gospel message, but we never really bring the most important matters to the forefront in a clear manner. In this case, we typically end up making our so-called presentation about Jesus about anything other than Jesus. To obfuscate means we don't really present Christ as He is. I think we find this in many movements. I think one would be the health and wealth gospel. That would be, you know, prosperity gospel. That would be an example of obfuscation. Now you will find that some of these teachers will actually teach a saving gospel. They will tell you, trust in Christ alone for salvation. They will tell that to you. But added to it, see here's the error, is that when you come to Christ, if you have enough faith, you will never get sick you will never be poor, right? You will overcome every challenge in your life. It's almost a naive triumphalism, an unbiblically founded view of victory, right? Where nothing bad is ever going to happen to us. You're still saved by grace, mind you, through faith. But then they add a bunch of other unbiblical garbage that is not true for the Christian. That's really not true for anyone. And the only reason they're living the high life is because they're bilking you of all your resources. Selling you a bill of goods. That's a way we obfuscate. It's a mixture of truth and error. Saying something's true about Christ and then saying some things that are untrue about Him. Right? I think a way we do this too, very important, is we, we turn Jesus into some kind of cosmic therapist. Right? That we He's there whenever we need Him and we draw near to Him so that so that He can make us feel better, so we can take away our hurts, so that He can listen to us. We talked about this boyfriend or girlfriend Jesus that we often sing about in our worship. Instead of the, the Savior, the mighty conquering King of Kings who laid His life down for us. And here's the third one. And this is of great importance as well. This is what we, I think many of us do today, and I, and I thank God that we're partially coming out of it, especially in many Reformed circles. But this is a... Um, this is a drum we keep beating. This is something we are, we are going to keep reminding you of um, until you really have confidence in the Gospel. And when you do have confidence in the Gospel, we're going to keep reminding you of it because I believe it's that key to our presentation. And we will call this 
truncating the gospel. So there's deviation, there's obfuscation, and there's truncation. You guys knew it was coming. We truncate the gospel. And this is to say that what we say about Jesus is true. So there's no intentional misleading. There's no mixing of truth and error. It's that we fail to tell the whole story. We don't tell the whole story regarding the gospel. And I think this single issue is the greatest internal challenge to the church today. See, what we say may be accurate. What we say about Jesus may be precise. It may even lead someone to saving faith, but it does not tell the whole story. Remember what Paul is saying here. He wants to make manifest. He wants to make visible the gospel of Jesus Christ. To tell the whole story. To speak the whole counsel of God in regard to His kingdom. So think of it this way. This is an example. We say that Christ lived a perfect life. God in the flesh, He died on the cross. He rose again on the third day, the third day and if you trust in Him alone... You can be made right with God. And to that, the church says a hearty amen. We believe that. That is the heart of the gospel. That's the saving message. That is true. That is clear. And yet, the issue comes is when we stop there and and fail to tell the rest of the story. That, That this is, that this message is the heart of the saving gospel, but is the heart also of a kingdom gospel. And the reason, I think one, one of the, One of the consequences of truncating the gospel is that we then see perseverance as more of a war of attrition, right? We're kind of holed up in our own mutual territories. I'm not saying this is true of every Christian. Keep that in mind. Most of us here are fairly optimistic. But many see this contending against the devil and sin and principalities and powers as a war of attrition. And we're just kind of lobbing spiritual artillery at one another and once in a while one of us makes a ma- get, gets a major key hit. You know, you sunk my battleship, right? We, we, we trade hits with each other. But there's no, there's no visible victory and there's no mindset of victory in Christ. And so what we do is we hold our ground until Jesus comes and snatches us away and makes all things right. Rather than anticipating in history... Christ's complete and total victory over His enemies and, I would add, triumph with His church and through His church. Because we understand that God is using His people as instruments of His Gospel to make earth and heaven one so that His will on earth will be the same as it is in heaven. That's what Jesus prayed for and I highly doubt that God the Father will turn His one and only Son down on that matter. That is what we anticipate And we anticipate that, most importantly, when we pray. That is why Jesus said, in this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer as well. That is the victory toward which we pray and in which we are involved. That Jesus Christ, namely, will use His church, His people, as instruments of transformational change so that all nations will come and bow the knee to Christ. That's why it's so important, guys, that we emphasize the gospel of the kingdom. Yes, we talk about Christ's death and resurrection. Absolutely. You don't believe that? You will remain in your sins. But we understand that that message is is absolutely key to the advancement of the kingdom. How does Christ's kingdom advance? When people believe the message of Christ's death and resurrection. That's how the kingdom advances. But I think sometimes we preach that message without any thought, any consideration, 
any anticipation of the growth, advancement, and final victory of that kingdom in real time. That's what I mean by truncating the gospel. And I think sometimes we do a disservice to one another, especially our kids, when we just really want them to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. But we don't make them disciples of the kingdom. It's that same thing. We desire them to get to heaven, but we do nothing when it comes to getting heaven into them. And all that, I think, is encapsulated in this. Speaking forth the mystery of Christ. Making it clear in the way we ought to speak. Clarity when we are, clarity achieved when we tell the whole story. When we talk about not only the saving message of the gospel, but what it will accomplish in total. And I hope that today we would see the the gravity of that and pray toward that. That is the way we ought to speak. We don't get our kids to ask Jesus into their heart and then leave them to their own devices. Whew, great, my kid accepted Jesus. And then he's going to live like hell for the rest of his life? No, that's, that's just the beginning. And then, when we, then we disciple them as kingdom subjects and proclaim to them regularly with all our hearts Christ and His kingdom and its advancement and its victory. It's victory over every principality and power. It's victory over every nation, and kingdom. That is what we're working towards. So while I have labored this subject, I want you guys to understand that the Gospel is more than simply that. There's more to it than simply Christ died and rose again. And if you want to get right with God, believe in Him. That is the springboard. That is merely the beginning. And there's so much more that comes after it. And that's really my heart for you guys. That's what I want us to to proclaim, to believe, and disciple our kids using the whole counsel of God. So he says that, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Now, we should carry this attitude with Paul. In Romans 1, 14-15, he says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So for my part, I I am eager to preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome. And then in 1 Corinthians 9.16, woe to me if I preach not the Gospel. And I just bring those up so that there's a sense of urgency. When we are able to understand the clarity, the fullness of the Gospel of the Kingdom of Jesus Christ, there accompanies that an urgency that I have to teach this. I must make this clear. I must bring this to light and make Christ and His work and accomplishments fully and clearly known. Woe to me if I do otherwise. And to not deviate from that. So may we have that same commitment as Paul does. Understanding as well that God is with us. That God empowers us to make this message clear. That's why we pray. Because we want strength. We want power. We understand that none of this is going to happen without the working of God. Without the working of His Spirit in our lives. Can't do it on our own. So even if we find ourselves, you know, inhibited or we, we, we cultivate reasons that we're unable to do this, I draw you to Exodus 4. God chooses Moses to go and deliver the Israelites out of bondage to the Egyptians. And uh, listen to what Moses says. He says to the Lord, verse 10, Please, Lord. You ever said that? Please, please, Lord. Please, Lord, no. I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past. He's like Paul. He's a, he's a babbler. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's tongue-tied. And then he says, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Going back to our opening quote by Dr. Sandlin, right? 
We act like these things are beyond God. They're beyond Him. They're beyond us, so they must be beyond Him. But then the Lord says, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf? Or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? See, you can be the most eloquent man on earth, and if God shuts you up, you won't be able to say anything. That's the command that God has over the human mouth that He has made. And conversely, if you are slow of tongue, if you're tongue-tied, you have a hard time getting that message out, you don't know what you're going to say, who do we look to? We look to God who made man's mouth, who makes man mute or deaf or seeing or blind. And then what's, what else is there? Well, here's the word of the Lord. Now then go. I made you. I'm in charge. I will give you what you need. Go. Go. And I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Isn't that crazy? We think, what is, what is Moses smoking here? He still resists the Lord. And he says, no, I'm with you. And he says, I, even I, that is for emphasis. I will be with you. And in the same way, he is with us to give us utterance, to give us clarity, to make manifest the riches of Christ and all of his person and work. Listen to Jeremiah. This will be our last example. In Jeremiah, he calls the prophet and he has, he has the same response Moses does. He says, alas, Lord, God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. Oh, now he's bringing age into it. Jeremiah is an ageist. I'm a youth. Why should I say anything? No one's going to listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am a youth. Because everywhere I send you, you shall go, and all that I command you, you shall speak. See, the Lord can use anyone. Because it's not by your strength or power or wisdom that the word goes forth. It's by the Lord's. And we should, and, and no matter what station we're in, we should be praying that He would use us to go and speak forward His word. And then He says this to Jeremiah, Do not be afraid of them, for I, for I am with you, just like Moses, to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out His hand, and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words into your mouth. See, that's why we can speak it with clarity. That's why we can speak the word with boldness. That's how we know that we ought to speak. How ought we to speak? We ought to speak the Lord's words and not our own. Notice this transformation over Jeremiah. Go to chapter 20 and he says, but if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. That we would have the heart of Jeremiah, that we can't hold it in anymore. People need to hear this. Our kids need to hear this. The one another's need to hear this. Or else we perish. So necessary is the word of God. So we go and preach. We preach faithfully. You know, all that we have heard. We devote ourselves to prayer. We keep alert in it. We're thankful. And then we go and in prayer, we let loose the Word of God and we pray again and again for opportunities. Please, brothers and sisters, don't grow dull or lax or unbelieving in that regard. I know there are many in here who struggle with prayer. We've talked about it. Probably the greatest problem, maybe the greatest sin of the church is prayerlessness. We simply don't pray. And let's just put aside the reason, all the reasons we don't. But this is a time to call ourselves to repentance. If you are a prayerless man or woman or child, repent and pray 
and go to the Lord and ask Him to do mighty things. Why? Because this is the New Testament. And the Lord is doing even mightier things. And we can bank our very soul on that reality. The Lord continues to do mighty things. And if you say, well, why not? I can almost guarantee it. But I would ask you this question. Did you ask? And did you ask again and again and again and again? What will your answer be? Please pray. Pray for one another. Pray to the Lord to do wonderful things. Pray to the Lord that the Gospel will go forth in this town. Pray to the Lord for Colorado Springs. And in the meantime, have kids, plant gardens, seek the welfare of the city, and do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. And go forth in the power of His Spirit and in the power of mighty prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for this time in Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for the power of prayer. We thank You for the command to pray. We thank You, God, that we have every reason to do so, not only because You've commanded us, but because it is a way in which we can uh, join ourselves to Your redemptive cause. We know that only, only Christ truly saves, but You use us to bring that message of salvation to, to starving souls. It's to help us to be faithful. Help us not to be cowards or, or clueless about Your Gospel. Help us not to sidestep the challenges that come our way, but with full confidence in Your Word to continue to make the truth of who Christ is and what He has done known. Lord, may we not compromise this Word also, this Word that we pray, that we pray for and pray forth. May we tell the truth and may we tell the whole truth where we know the, the power of the Gospel. We've seen it in our own lives. We've seen it around the world. We've seen it make it, seen it make manifest everywhere. And we recognize also that the reason we see that is because saints pray for that. And we don't want to be caught prayerless. We want to be able to pray now and then even look back and see those answered prayers and know that You used us to call out to Your name, to ask You to do wondrous works, to do mighty deeds, that Your grace would be made fully manifest in the lives of those who hear Your Gospel. Lord, we don't want to be on the sidelines. We don't want to be inactive. We don't want to be prayerless. We don't want to be unawares of what You are doing. And what a great, what a great benefit that is, is when we pray, we are reminded of the work that You are accomplishing. And so we can be encouraged and pray all the more. So Lord, if we are indeed pray- prayerless, we can pray to You now. Grant us repentance from a prayerless, faithless attitude and help us to stand firm and call out to You daily, regularly, with believing hearts, knowing that You have many mighty acts yet to do and to accomplish, even in our town. May we also teach our kids especially, may we teach them to pray, may we set an example of them, to them of always coming to You. That is our first reaction, whether in trouble or whether in triumph we go to You and pour out our hearts knowing that You will answer. So I pray, Lord, that that would be characteristic of our church, that we would be a praying people. And that through those prayers, Christ's name would be known and adored. It's in that name we pray. Amen.